0: Hello and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 71, Space Shuttle Flight 4, STS-4, The 500-Pound Stowaway. Last time, we learned about Jack Lausma, Gordon Fullerton, a whole bunch of different orbiter studying experiments, and a dusty place called White Sands, which were all part of the Space Shuttle's third mission, STS-3. Other than its notable landing in New Mexico, STS-3 seems to have been a pretty under-the-radar flight. In a way, that's a good thing. Really, the one thing that all astronauts, mission controllers, engineers, and technicians want is a nice, smooth flight with no crazy stories to come out of it. But I do have to wonder if maybe this is where the public interest started to wane a bit. This is just me completely speculating, but you've got STS-1, which ushered in the next-generation spacecraft and restored America's place in space. Then STS-2 is the first reuse of an orbital spacecraft, something unthinkable just a decade earlier. And then STS-3, which like all space missions is inherently interesting, but what was the public going to latch on to? Further characterization of the orbiter's thermal response? Interesting to us, but I've got to wonder. But don't worry, today's mission will make its own mark in the history books and will provide a few spicy moments on orbit. Perhaps most noteworthy in the long term, STS-4 marked the end of the orbital test flights. Since we'll be leaving this period of the shuttle behind after this episode, let's take one more quick look at what the orbital test flights were. I think something about the rapid-fire nature of the space race in the 1960s and the staggering expense of spaceflight made us forget, but normally a new vehicle has a pretty extensive shakedown period would you get on the third ever flight of a brand new type of jumbo jet? Or even the 300th? In Apollo, in my opinion, the only flights that could really be called straight-up test flights were 7 and 9, which tested the command module and lunar module respectively. You could maybe throw 8 and 10 in there, the first lunar flight and the first lunar flight of the lunar module, but in my mind, those put more emphasis on testing procedures and process than on basic hardware checkout. After those flights, it was straight into the landing missions. With so much time pressure, and with Apollo being a fairly limited program, that probably made sense. But with the shuttle, things were different. We now know that there were only 135 flights of the space shuttle, but at the time, NASA had plans to eventually launch as often as every other week. If we keep the math simple, and suppose that had held for the same 30 year period, that would have meant 780 flights. So it made sense to spend a few flights less focused on accomplishing the real goals of the shuttle, stuff like satellite deployment, satellite retrieval, science experiments, and so on, and more focused on the shuttle itself. And in a nod to the unknowns surrounding these early flights, the crew was constrained to two astronauts, each of whom had an ejection seat that could be used during some portions of ascent and reentry. But at the same time, the shuttle was already years behind schedule, and these flights weren't exactly cheap so you didn't want to spend too long before the operational or quote-unquote real mission started. So there was pressure to keep the number of orbital test flights down, with NASA eventually settling on four. With that in mind, as we've seen, these early missions were largely dedicated to studying the orbiter itself. How did it control? How did it control when it wasn't quite on target? How did it handle abnormal thermal conditions? What was it like in the payload bay? How did the low-Earth orbit environment and the orbiter interact? How easy was it for the astronauts to get their jobs done? What were the sticking points? Well, I'm sure all of this was asked to a certain extent on all of the missions, for the orbital test flights, they were the center of attention. The hope was that by the end of STS-4, around 20 days of flight time, the shuttle would be a well-understood, flight-proven, and reliable vehicle, ready to get to work. Flying as payloads on this mission would be... Actually, you know what? Last time, I spent a little too long on the ground talking about payloads and not enough time in space. So let's just hop into, on June 27th, 1982 at 11am, for the first time with no postponements, scrubs, or delays, Columbia sprang off of the launch pad for the last of the orbital test flights. Whoa. Okay, we're in orbit now, so I guess we should probably meet our crew. Flying as commander was one of only two people to fly on both the Saturn V and the Space Shuttle ken mattingly mattingly is probably best known for a mission that he didn't even fly when he was bumped from the command module pilot seat on apollo 13 just days before the flight he went on to play a key role in the safe recovery of his former crew including his replacement jack Swigert. we last saw him as the command module pilot on apollo 16 which was commanded by john young the other guy who had flown on both a saturn V and space shuttle Mattingly spent several days orbiting the moon by himself, performing science experiments, and keeping the crew's ride home in working order. This is his second of three spaceflights. Joining Mattingly and flying as pilot was Hank Hartsfield. Henry Hartsfield, who went by Hank, was born in Birmingham, Alabama on November 21st, 1933. He earned a bachelor's degree in physics from Auburn University, and 17 years later, picked up a master's degree in engineering science from the University of Tennessee. In between, he joined up with the Air Force where he flew fighter jets around Germany before heading to the deserts around Edwards Air Force Base for test pilot school. Like many of these early shuttle astronauts, he was selected for the Manned Orbiting Laboratory program in 1966, and joined NASA after MOL's cancellation in 1969. Hartsfield actually worked with Mattingly previously, sitting in as Capcom on Apollo 16. This is his first of three spaceflights. Notably, this crew served as the backup crew for both STS-2 and STS-3, so they were probably itching to go when it was finally their turn. But they were also the last ever backup crew, since with crews growing in size and complexity, the concept of swapping out the whole crew didn't really make sense anymore. As Mattingly and Hartsfield unstrapped from their seats following Miko and began settling into their 7 day stay in orbit, their minds may have turned to a problem observed on ascent. I actually don't know when this news was broken to the crew, but to experts inspecting the shuttle telemetry, it looked like the main engines were running low on power. But looks can be deceiving. What looks like low engine performance could be perfectly normal engine performance, but with the engines pushing more mass than expected but how would the shuttle have more mass than expected? Well, let's take a quick step back a day to when Columbia was still on the launch pad. On the night of June 26th, the night before the launch, a hailstorm rolled over the Kennedy Space Center. Little chunks of ice pelted the orbiter exposed out on the launch pad. Hundreds of little divots were observed in the heat shield, but nothing seemed to be too damaged. As technicians got to work inspecting and repairing the heat shield, NASA threw one of the tile experts into a T-38 jet and flew him from Houston to Kennedy just to be safe. Some minor repairs were required, but the thermal protection system seemed to be in working order. Until they got to orbit. I don't know who pieced this one together, but they deserve a raise. Somehow, someone determined that the poor engine performance was actually caused by excess mass due to rainwater that had been absorbed by the heat shield through tiny cracks in the outer ceiling layer. And not just a little water. I've seen estimates that range from 500 and a couple thousand pounds of rainwater. This was bad enough, but it also raised serious safety concerns. If the water froze and expanded, it could crack the tiles. Or maybe even worse, if it turned to steam during reentry heating, it could make the tiles blow up in a process that reminds me of Popcorn. Not a word you want to hear in the context of your thermal protection system. The solution was to face the belly of the orbiter towards the sun for an extended period of time, baking out the excess water. Luckily, facing the sun for an extended period of time was part of the thermal stress test plan anyway. Unluckily, it wasn't supposed to be the first thing in the mission, so the timeline got sort of scrambled. And to give you an idea of just how much water had to be baked out, among the list of mission anomalies was an off-nominal attitude caused by a substantial amount of torque generated by the unevenly outgassing water. That is, the water essentially turned the entire bottom of the orbiter into one big splotchy extremely low power thruster. I'm going to go ahead and call this story a The Space Above Us special, because it's exactly the type of weird little side story that I love. I'd never heard of it before, and if it gets mentioned at all, it sort of gets mentioned in passing. But it's so strange and so interesting. Who would have imagined the shuttle launching with an extra 500 pounds of water stuck in the heat shield? One little side note, that wasn't the only issue with the ascent. Due to a problem with the main parachutes, both solid rocket boosters impacted the ocean at high speed and sank. This was a real bummer, because remember, the SRBs are reusable, so their loss wasted a lot of resources. Thankfully, this wasn't exactly a common problem. In fact, this was only one of two missions where the SRBs were not successfully recovered. While the heat shield underwent its depopcornification process, definitely the real name and not something I just made up, There was plenty of time to attend to the numerous payloads, experiments, and procedures included in this flight. The top priorities of STS-4 were similar to STS-3, characterizing the orbiter's response to extreme thermal conditions, and better understanding the contamination environment in the payload bay. Notably among the payloads were the first classified shuttle payload, which I promised I wouldn't talk about anymore, and the first commercial shuttle experiment. The commercial experiment was called the continuous flow electrophoresis system. Electrophoresis is a pretty neat technique for separating different fluids that have been mixed together. Imagine if you wanted to take a sample of some fluid and separate it out into its constituent parts so that they can be studied individually, or maybe you just want one of the fluids and need to get rid of the rest. There's a lot of different ways to accomplish this separation but electrophoresis takes advantage of the differing response of the particles in the fluid to electric charge. If I understand correctly, the particles are basically dragged towards an electrode similar to a magnet. Since different compounds will react differently to electricity, some being dragged more quickly than others, you can kind of tease them apart into different groups. The only problem is that normally when you do this, you have gravity messing stuff up for you. Gravity results in things like convection currents, which might overwhelm the delicate movement induced by the electricity. So this payload was going to try it in space, where things should be a little easier. There was a thought that stuff like this might be so much better in space than on Earth that it could drive a whole new commercial industry for things like pharmaceuticals, producing super pure medicine in orbit. In this case, the fluid being tested was a bunch of proteins. Another first for payloads was the first getaway special. As I mentioned last time, the getaway specials were small standardized containers in the payload bay that sort of played a similar role to today's CubeSats. If you were at a university or an industry and wanted to fly a small simple experiment in space, NASA wanted to make it easy to get that done. In this case, the slot was purchased by a manager named R. Gilbert Moore who worked at the solid rocket booster manufacturing company, Thiokol? Moore did a pretty cool thing and donated the slot to Utah State University so that students could get some hands-on experience with real space payloads. The students put together nine experiments looking at stuff like brine shrimp growth, surface tension, and a bunch of other stuff. One thing I'd like to keep an eye out for when researching this show is funny little slice-of-life moments. Stuff that is typically too small to make it into most retellings, but that gives you a little more sense for what living and working in space is really like. One great source for this is the series of oral histories collected by the Johnson Space Center. I've been cruising around in these a lot lately, but I've also been reading a handy source that collected some of the best moments from the histories into a more approachable format. So it's time for another book recommendation. If you want to hear stories of the early shuttle era and the astronauts' own words, check out the book Bold, They Rise, The Space Shuttle Early Years, by David Hitt and Heather Smith. If David Hitt sounds familiar, that's because he was also one of the authors on Homesteading Space, which I found so invaluable during the Skylab episodes. Anyway, here's one of those little slice-of-life moments. Somewhat bizarrely, at least to me, these early flights did not include sleeping bags. Or if they did, there weren't enough for the whole crew, so the crew would either sleep in their ejection seats, find a place to wedge into, or just sort of float around. In this case, Ken Mattingly slept up in the flight deck while Hank Hartsfield slept down on the mid-deck. To Mattingly's annoyance, despite settling in near the floor right behind the ejection seats, he kept waking up with his face pressed against the overhead windows at the aft of the flight deck. When they woke up, they compared notes and Hartsfield had no such problems. I'll give you one chance to figure it out on your own. Here's a hint. The mission was continuing to test thermal responses, including the response of the orbiter to a passive thermal roll. Got it yet? It turns out that the axis of the roll passed right through the mid-deck, leaving the flight deck, oh, let's call it 10 feet, off axis. This meant that even with the passive thermal roll being exceedingly gentle, it acted like a big centrifuge. Hartsfield, right on the axis, was unaffected. Mattingly, substantially off-axis, was whirled further away from the axis, right onto the ceiling of the flight deck. It's exactly like those rides at the amusement park where it spins up and you get stuck to the sides, but, you know, a lot slower. A less amusing and far more serious unpredicted event took place later in the flight. With the water baked out of the heat shield the crew was free to return to the regularly scheduled thermal testing, and had spent a substantial amount of time with the outside of the payload bay doors facing the sun. Their reaction to excess heat was especially important for two reasons. First, they hold the orbiter's radiators, which are responsible for disposing of excess heat. So it was important that they could handle direct exposure themselves. But second, the payload bay doors were made out of a graphite epoxy composite material, Composites are great because they're a lot lighter than metal, but can be really tricky to build into large or complex structures. Plus, their thermal response was going to be different than the metal that made up the rest of the underlying orbiter structure, hence the stress tests. Well, stressed they were because when the time came to cycle the doors and make sure that they still closed, the port or left door had actually expanded enough in the heat to catch the orbiter structure warping as the motors continued to close it. The crew immediately stopped the movement, but the damage had been done. This was very bad. A warped door wasn't going to seal properly, and likely meant a successful re-entry would be impossible. After a quick consult with the ground, the crew opened the door back up, which promptly sprang back into shape. Turns out, another thing that composites are good at is having a little flexibility. If the doors had been made out of metal, there's a really good chance that it would have just permanently bent, requiring the astronauts to improvise a solution. Incidents like this were to be expected in the early missions. After all, that's what the test flights were all about, but it's still a pretty scary moment. If any experts out there could tell me what the chances of the shuttle surviving entry with a half-open payload bay would be, please write in. As always, I'm at jp at thespaceabove.us. A week can pass in the blink of an eye when you're busy, so it wasn't long before the crew of STS-4 were packing to go home. Landing was especially noteworthy because the plan called for Columbia to land at Edwards on the 4th of July, Independence Day here in the States, where the crew would meet with President Reagan and the First Lady. In one oral history, Mattingly joked, It was no uncertain terms that we were going to land on the 4th of July, no matter what day we took off. Even if it was the 5th, we were going to land on the 4th, to quote. You don't want to disappoint the president, after all. So after seven days, Columbia aimed to the proper attitude, fired up the Ohms engines, and began its long descent home. Today's landing would be a little more precise than usual. For the first time since the final Enterprise flight, a space shuttle would be landing on an actual concrete runway. As you'll recall, that landing didn't go so great with Commander Fred Hayes running afoul of some long control feedback loops and getting into a dangerous pilot-induced oscillation. Enterprise's wingtips wobbled back and forth before a fairly hard landing, a return to the air, and then a second landing further down the runway. Manningly hoped to have a decidedly less dramatic landing, so he must have been particularly distraught when during the final approach he was overcome by a wave of vertigo. I guess there's a reason why they require shuttle pilots to practice the approach thousands and thousands and thousands of times, both in the simulator and the training aircraft. It has to become second nature. So even if you're gritting your teeth while trying not to fall over or lose your lunch, you can still stick the landing. And he definitely stuck the landing. It was so gentle, only about one foot per second, that the crew weren't even sure that they were on the ground at first. 10,826 feet later, Columbia's wheels stopped. The vehicle was saved. the crew emerged, the President and First Lady were greeted, and the mission was over. And with that, the operational phase of the space shuttle could begin. Next time, we'll be discussing STS-5, the first shuttle mission with a crew of more than two, and the first NASA mission with a crew of more than three. Also, the first mission planned to deploy a commercial satellite and perform a spacewalk from the payload bay. And with the shuttle's safety proven to everyone's satisfaction, the crew was going to fly in comfort. The bulky pressure suits typically worn during ascent and entry would be left in the closet this time. The space shuttle was going to deliver on its promise of a shirt sleeve environment with the STS-5 crew of four launching with just a helmet and a fabric jumpsuit. It's time for the shuttle to get to work. Add Astra... Catch you on the next pass.